it is a blessing beyond what you likely know for us to be here again this morning. The text that I'm going to be preaching from, uh, by way of explanation, I was greatly burdened to preach on this text for some time now, for some time ago, as our sons, we have three sons, as our sons were transitioning to manhood, they began to look to the church and to their surroundings seeking a spouse. And I should clarify, at that time and, and, and for that application, we were very interested in, in the, the process of courtship as a means by which a spouse might be discovered. And one of my sons began communication with a young lady and they requested her father to become involved. It was a very brief conversation because when that father got involved, he understood that my son wanted little more in his life to, than to find a godly wife and to raise godly children in a godly household. That was his aspiration. He was no longer to be considered as a potential spouse for the young lady, for the man desired his son-in-law to have a larger vision, to have some larger ministry. My son's vision was too small. And the man whose identity and whose ministry I will not divulge his ministry would be known to each and every one of you. It's inter internationally known. He has a large place in the evangelical community. But in my estimation, he had a very small view of the simple Christian life. I'm sure he and I would agree, as Paul declared in 1 Timothy chapter 3, that it's a faithful saying, if a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. It is a good thing. It's a notion or a concept that I think comes upon many of us, maybe not particularly bishop or elder pastor, but other ministries. Sometime during our walk, we may sense an inclination, perhaps a call, to, if you'll forgive my use of the term, a higher calling. And such callings are good things. But we understand from Scripture that we are not all called to great things in that sense. Paul, in his first letter to the Corinthians in the 12th chapter, even as he's beginning to introduce the well-known 13th chapter, the love chapter, in the 27th verse he says, you are, one, you are the body of Christ and members individually, and God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, 
After that, miracles, and he goes on to talk about the sign gifts. In the 29th verse, he asks the question, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers? And then he concludes the chapter saying, but I'm going to speak of a more excellent way and points to the life of love and the manifestation of love in the life of the believer. I believe the necessary answer to the 29th verse is no, not all are called as apostles, prophets, teachers, or any other, as we would call them, higher calling. But we are all called to walk in a manner that glorifies the Lord our God. We all have a calling in this life, and I'm going to go to a text that I believe in the most succinct fashion describes the calling of each and every one of us as God's creatures, as God's special creation. In fact, I think I will turn there now. We're in Micah chapter 6. We'll read verses 6 through 8. Micah chapter 6, verse 6 reads, Wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? But then, by God's grace and through his revelation, the true answer is provided in the eighth verse. He hath showed thee, O man, what is good and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. To do justly, to do justice, some text reads, to love mercy, to love kindness, other texts translate, and to walk humbly with thy God. Encapsulated there is what God requires of each and every one of his creatures. Requires. Not desires. Not wishes. He establishes clearly that these are, this is the required characteristic, the required conduct of all that walk in his image, all that were created in his image. We understand through the New Testament revelation most clearly that we are saved by grace. And some would stop at salvation by grace through faith and then just wait for glory. But that is not what God requires of his creatures. Of his creatures, he requires no good work for salvation. Of his creatures, he requires no obedience for salvation. But of his redeemed, of his redeemed, he requires 
and will manifest in them and through them good works. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, we read, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Not necessarily for great works. Not necessarily for works that all the world will hear of but created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we must understand that God has requirements of his redeemed. It's illustrated in the earliest pictures of redemption. In Leviticus chapter 17, in Leviticus 17.10, we read this. So likewise, I'm sorry, I'm in the wrong place. We'll talk about Leviticus in just a minute. Be patient. We're in Luke 17. In Luke 17, we are reminded that as his children, we have a duty. Jesus, in relating a story, relates a story of a servant and a master. And he concludes with this. So likewise, in other words, like any servant, Luke 17, 10. So likewise, you, when you have done all these things which you are commanded, say we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. Do not get confused in the light of God's glorious grace that you do not have a duty to do. And that duty, in its essence, is what we read in Malachi 6.8. I'm sorry, Micah 6.8. It's a duty. It's not what we ought to do. It's what God requires. So again, our key text Micah 6, 8 says, He hath showed thee, O man, what is good and what doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly. To do justly, to do justice. What does that mean? Well, in its most simplistic form, it means be obedient to God's commands. Understand that God commands his people. God has a standard of righteousness. In its simplistic form, he laid it out for the people of Israel in his Ten Commandments. To just skim across them from Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 17, he, he, he reminds them, and we'll remind ourselves, that he is speaking to his redeemed. And I think that's significant. Both in Leviticus 19 and Exodus 20, when he begins to talk about his people needing to be obedient to his command, he begins the conversation by reminding them that they are of the redeemed. A wonderful illustration for us today that we who walk among the redeemed have a call upon our lives. Obedience didn't get us here other than obedience to the gospel. But obedience is our calling going forward. Again, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, he says, 
And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. I am the one who saved you. I am the one who redeemed you. A wonderful illustration for us today. You shall have no other gods before me. And I'm just going to highlight some of the commandments. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not bow down to them. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, nor anything that is your neighbor's. God's law sits before us as the simple form. The cheat notes, if you will, of God's standard of righteousness. High level. We've talked about it before. I'll highlight it again just briefly. During the time of the Reformation, the reformers, the uh, biblical scholars of the time, the preachers of the time, understood that God's law had a purpose for them. Remember, we, we must remember that it is in the, in the Protestant Reformation that the church rediscovered God's grace, salvation by grace through faith. That was the cornerstone of their renewal of the, of the Reformation, that they understood were sal- saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, to God's glory alone. And I forgot it alone, but that's all right. It was all about God's grace. It was all about salvation by grace through faith. Yet still, they understood that there was a standard of righteousness that we are called to obey, and it was God's law. And they understood there were three basic uses for that law. We've talked about this before. It, was, it is to be used, as described in Galatians chapter 3, as a, as a schoolmaster to reveal our sin in ourselves and to, to bring us to Christ. We read in Romans chapter 13 that it's a, it's a rule that... that tends to, we keep it before the world to keep the world's evil restrained to some extent, to some limited extent, is the foundation of our laws. But the third purpose, which is the one we're talking about primarily today, is it provides for the believer a structure, an outline, an indication of the life that must be lived that meets the standard to live justly. The life that we must live to delight our God. Back here. First Samuel, I think. Yes, first Samuel. Chapter fifteen. Verse twenty two. I think gives us, gives us an insight or declares a truth that I, I think needs to be just a wonder to us. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22, And Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the, voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. So, The clear and direct teaching of that text is God would prefer, God requires you to obey. Much of else that we talk about, we rejoice in the repentance of a sinner. But obedience is better than repentance. 
And the indirect teaching of the text, which I take great joy in, is that the Lord delights in obedience. It's hard to imagine that we as mere creatures, failing creatures, weak creatures, sinning creatures, can bring delight to our Lord through obedience. So to live justly, to live just, to walk justly, to walk just, means to walk in the light of God's word, in obedient to God's commandments, and to do so brings delight to the Lord our God. And we're reminded, we're reminded in Romans chapter 2, in the 15th verse, that humans have the law of God written on our hearts. Now, we, we reviewed the text, uh, the text of the New Covenant, and one of the elements and the uh, promise within the New Covenant is the writing of the law on God's heart, but I understand that to mean writing it anew. All God's creatures, I believe from the text of Romans 12, let me read Romans 2, verses 12 through 16, so we get it in context. For as many as have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For the hearers of the law are just, not the hearers in the law are just in in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified, will walk justly. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are are a law to themselves, who show the law, they demonstrate the law, they reveal the law, I add to it, who show the law, the, the work of the law, written on their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing themselves. Evidence that at some level, Some aspect of walking as a creature that is created in God's image is to have the law of God written on your hearts. And we as believers have the spirit of God, very God of very God in the form of the Holy Spirit indwelling us to continue to draw our attention to that law. To see in its simplest form the Ten Commandments and to have within our hearts the reminder that These have broader and further implications, and we can see the standard of God's righteousness, the standard of God's purity and goodness in his law. And it directs us on the path that we should follow. So to all men, he hath showed to me, he hath showed to you, he hath showed to thee, O man, what is good and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly to walk in the light of God's law, to walk in view of the standard and in mind the standard of God's righteousness and to do justice. Now, we're going to be informed a little bit more about this when we come to the next phrase. But we need to understand in its simplest form, what does it mean to do justly? What does it mean to do right in the light of God's law? We worship God and God alone. We set nothing else on the throne of God. We have no other gods. We worship him. We praise him. That is doing justice to God, our creator. 
He is worthy to be praised. He is worthy to be worshiped. He is worthy to be obeyed, to, to follow the simple command to, to do justly in light of your creator, in light of your good God, is to be obedient to him. To do justice to one another, because we are to walk justly. That includes walking justly, me with you and you with me. But in light of what we're about to talk about in loving mercy, it does not mean that I must exact justice upon you. This text in, in uh, Micah 6, 8, when it speaks of walking justly, it's, worried most, it's focusing primarily on my conduct. I deal fairly with you. You can believe me when I speak. I do that which is right and good and consistent with God's law when I deal with you. As a quick aside, if you are in a position of authority and at some lower level that you are responsible for meeting out justice as an authority in a particular sphere, well, yes, then you work justice upon individuals at times. Our government officials are called to do such things. But in general, this text is talking about me dealing with you and dealing with you rightly, justly, equitably, because I have to deal with the next verse or the next phrase, because it says, I must love mercy. He hath declared to thee, O man, what is good, yea, what is, what is good, yea, what is Jehovah requiring of, of thee, except to do judgment, to love kindness. Oh, I'm going to a new translation. Let me back up. I'm going to read it in the King James where I started. He hath showed thee, O man, what is good and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. I want to bring in the Young's literal translation, the translation of, uh, of mercy. If you look broadly across many translations, you'll see either mercy, generally, or kindness. To love mercy or to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. We can understand that mercy is a, is a manifestation of kindness. Probably the most common translation is kindness, and that's the one I'd kind of like to use for this conversation. To love justice, I'm sorry, to, 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 to walk justly, conduct myself fairly with you, to work equitably with you, but to love mercy. To love mercy, what does that mean? Well, first, I think it's important that it talks about loving mercy just as a thing. Not love acting merciful, not love receiving mercy or kindness, but to love it as an entity in all of its forms, whether it's giving of kindness or receiving of kindness, it should be a joy to us. When we see kindness bestowed upon another, it should bring us joy. We should love that. If we receive kindness, first, we should never resent it. Secondly, we should find joy in it, in all of its applications. What does that mean? If, so I have to reconcile walking justly and loving kindness. That means I am fair to others, but quite regularly, I let others off the hook. I do not require justice of them. I bestow mercy and kindness upon them. 
We talked, we talked before about if you're in a particular sphere, a particular discipline, you are responsible for meeting out justice in certain circumstances, understanding that ultimate justice does not come until glory. But in general, talking to one another, dealing with one another, I am, I am to hold myself to a high and righteous standard, dealing rightly, coveting nothing that I ought not to covet, dealing fairly with you, giving when I ought to give, being trustworthy, and all of those elements of walking justly. And if my brother fails, if my brother stumbles, if my brother treats me unjustly, I am to deal with that brother with kindness. I require justice of me. I bestow grace and mercy upon my brother. If that isn't a picture of Christ, I, I don't know what one is. But remember, these are both things that God requires of us, that God will delight in if we are obedient to them. God doesn't simply hope that you will be kind. He requires it of you, and he requires it of me. I, I was talking to a young man who um, at, at one time uh, claimed a faith, at one time seemed to be walking with the Lord. And it came out in conversation that, it, 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 that he felt if whatever he were to say to another person were accurate, as long as it was accurate, it's just. And it's, it's consistent with what is right. I will read into that. It's in it's, he would consider that right in God's eyes. But that's not what the text tells us. You can speak truth to someone and be in transgression of the very fundamental command and call upon our lives. Because God requires of me, God requires of you to love kindness. Can the truth be communicated more kindly? If the truth needs to be spoken, it needs to be done in the context within the command that God has for us. It is disobedience to be unkind when dealing with another. It is such a serious issue. The scriptures commit 12 full verses to a simple story to articulate how important forgiveness on the part or practiced by believers is to the one that saved our soul. Matthew chapter 18, verses 23 through 35 tell a very familiar story to you. Matthew 18, 23 says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience on me, and I will pay you all. Then the master of the servant was moved with compassion 
dare I say kindness, released him and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found his fellow servant, servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what thou owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what he had done, they were very grieved and came and told their master and all, all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt, and because you begged me. Should you not also have compassion upon your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. And then comes an extremely uncomfortable and startling verse. So my heavenly Father also will do to you if, e if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. I do believe the text must be considered hyperbole because this is not the this is not the um, blaspheming of the Holy Spirit, the one unforgivable sin. I think in the light of Scripture we can understand it that way. But it is a severe warning. It's not a one and done. If you if you didn't forgive somebody one time, that is the unforgivable sin. But so harsh is the language. So clear is the command that we dare not walk contrary to that as our normal practice. What the practice that should, should ref, be reflected in the life of the believer, the one who loves mercy, is that who, one who forgives, who responds in kindness. He hath shown thee, O man, what is good and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God, to require you to love mercy. To love mercy, to walk mercifully, to walk in kindness, to conduct ourselves in kindness toward one another is a command, it is a requirement of our holy and righteous God to each and every one of us. And in as much as we follow that command, we bring delight to the Lord our God. We are still unprofitable servants. Think of that, please. As an unprofitable servant, we still have the ability to delight our God and our Savior. He doesn't sit on high and keep only marks of things that we must repent of. He takes note of our obedience. He takes note, including our kindness, and he finds delight in it. Delight. I was able to watch one of my sons teach in a Bible class, and I can tell you, I found delight in watching him to do those things and to provide sound biblical instruction. It, 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 other things can't compare. But 
our holy and righteous God can look upon us, his mere creatures, and find delight. Inasmuch as we love our God and our neighbor, he finds delight in what we're doing. The extent to which we're a husband who loves sacrificially his wife, he finds delight. The extent to we as wives, those of us who are wives, submit ourselves to our husband as to the Lord, he finds delight. Parents, grandparents training up their children the way they should go delights your God and your Savior. If you're out in the workforce and you work not as a man pleaser, but as serving Christ, your Savior finds delight. Living sacrificially one for another delights the Lord our God. We must learn to delight our Savior. Too often I think our our, our attention is drawn, at, I have to be careful with this, we are, our, our, our attention is drawn as it should be to our failings. And we must agree with the Lord that we have failed and we come to him trusting in his forgiveness, understanding that he has already forgiven the transgression we repent, and, we, and it is right to do so, but we can't neglect. We dare not neglect the concept, the notion that he is growing us in Christ. And in as much as we are growing in Christ and growing like Christ, he is finding delight in us. But we finish the verse, we finish 6, 8, where it says, and to walk humbly with thy God. But if I'm walking in a way in which he finds delight through walking justly and loving mercy, why am I to be walking humbly? If for no other reason than the only reason that you're walking justly or loving mercy because the Lord your God is working in your heart to do those things that please him. Right? It's God that works in us, both to will and to do his good pleasure. Whatever victory you have, whatever mercy you show, whatever obedience you walk in, it's a work of Christ in your life. What did Paul say in Romans chapter 7? For I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing, for to will is present with me, but how to perform it, that which is good I find not. The prophet Isaiah declared all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. I'm sure I've said this before because I'm so disappointed in myself, but you realize that even your repentance is selfish very often. 
Maybe you have better repentance than I do. If, if you do, praise God. Even my repentance I find so often is I just want to feel better. You know, I did something that God would hate, and it's a burden for me. I'd like to get that burden away from me, and therefore I repent. That sad repentance can still bring delight to the Lord my God. And he's doing a work in me, and he's doing a work in you if you know Christ as Savior. And he's working that work to completion. Do you realize there will be a time, for those of us who know and trust Christ, there will be a time when there is nothing we will do that will do other than delight the Lord our God. We will be in glory, praising his name, singing, declaring his worthiness with no distractions, no burden of sin, no presence of sin, the guilt of sin way behind us. And the Lord God will look upon his redeemed and find only delight. Even as he looked upon the lamb slain from the foundation of the world with whom in eternity past and in eternity future will only delights. He will have the same pure, loving, complete delight in you and I as he has in the Son, has always had in the Son, and has in the Savior, and they one for another. But until then, until then, he will do a work. And whatever your calling, foundational to that calling, is that you walk justly. You show mercy and walk humbly with the Lord, your God, your Savior. It's a simple Christian life is the title. I never title my messages, but I title this one, The Simple Christian Life. Please understand, simple does not mean easy. Simple means it's easy to understand. It's a simple Christian life, and it is a life that we fail at day by day, moment by moment. And that's why God sent his son. That whosoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. We do not walk justly. We do not love mercy. We rarely are humble before our God. But there is one. There is one who did always those things that pleased his Father. He did justly. He walked in perfect justice. He loved mercy. Even as he cried out, 
that, they, that men be forgiven who drove the nails into his hands, that participated in the physical crucifixion. He cried out words of mercy toward them, about them, I should say, to his father. He walked justly. He loved mercy. And when the time came, even as was prophesied, he that was God subjected himself to the God who is the Father on the cross, gave up his life so that who would ever believe in him would not perish but have eternal life and receive to our account his walking justly, his loving of mercy, and his walking humbly before his God. His perfect obedience to that simple command is now what we, what God sees when he considers us and our obedience. Praise God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, and God, we have a simple calling, Lord. We are to do that which is right before you. Included in that which is right before you, Lord, is to love mercy and to be kind to others. And in light and in, in, in that practice, Lord, we are to remain humble before you. We confess, Heavenly Father, even now that we do none of those things, certainly none of them perfectly. But by your grace, Lord God, we know that you are working in us and through us to walk better, to behave more justly, to be more consistently kind, and more genuinely humble. Lord, thank you, Heavenly Father, for the work you're doing within us. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the work accomplished completely and fully in Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.